I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's time for Ask Me Anything About Climate Change and Your Health. Along with the fires, there's a secondary hazard. Heavy smoke is now covering several cities, including Calgary. I have asthma, so it's been quite difficult. I've been coughing a lot. When your lungs have to work harder, then your heart also has to work harder. It actually increases our risk of cancer. Mosquitoes and other bugs that carry these infectious diseases are able to survive at higher altitudes. It's all these other impacts on health. So there's some interesting thoughts on uh, what the climate change impacts to our health uh, could be, may already be. Wildfire smoke, of course, this week in parts of Alberta in BC, uh, urging residents to watch out for shortness of breath, dizziness, chest pains, from polluted air to extreme heat to seasonal allergies. What does it all mean for our health? Well, we've got somebody who knows all about that, Dr. Courtney Howard, an emergency physician and the vice chair of the Global Climate and Health Alliance. Dr. Howard is here to take your calls and answer questions about the impact of climate change on your health. You can ask her anything. 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck, all one word. Uh, And with that, I'm going to say hello to Dr. Courtney Howard. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Appreciate you um, being with us uh, because I know that although you live in Yellowknife, uh, that's where home is. You're currently doing a master's at Oxford, um, but you studied the, the health impacts of the 2014 wildfire season uh, back home. What'd you find? Yes, well, a lot of the pictures coming out of Edmonton and Calgary remind me of the summer of 2014 in Yellowknife. We had almost two and a half months of pretty severe wildfire smoke. When we looked in the literature base, it was one of the worst recorded smoke exposures ever. So we found that we had a full doubling of emergency department visits for asthma and a 50% increase in visits for pneumonia. And we also did 30 community-based interviews in partnership with the Yellowknife Dene and the Kagatoop First Nation. So we sent people out onto the land with a, a community member and a video camera and said, hey, just tell us how it felt to live through the summer of smoke and people chatted and when we analyzed the transcripts uh, Warren Dodd led our qualitative analysis what we found were real threads of anxiety Uh, people really felt disconnected from the land particularly people who enjoy gardening who uh, go out onto the land to fish to hunt uh, to gather berries Uh, people felt a real cabin fever from being cooped up inside with the windows closed for that long and that was combined with a decrease in physical activity so You know, frequently in the emergency department, I'll actually give exercise prescriptions for everything from anxiety to depression to high blood pressure to diabetes, because Mm. we know that exercise helps with all of those things. And so not only were people 
feeling kind of trapped inside and socially isolated, but they also lost the treatment benefit of that exercise, as well as the treatment benefit of spending time in nature, which we're increasingly realizing is really, really important. Um, one of the other themes was that people expressed, uh, similar to what we've heard a lot uh, from the callers today, that they wondered what this meant for their kids. They said things like, if it's this bad now, what does this mean for, for my children? And so that was a, you know, an expression of a real worry about the, the very real threat that we all face. Um, the part that I, I love the most actually was this other final theme where people who had prepared the most felt the best. So you could see on camera, their entire body posture was different. They sat up straight. They looked empowered. They looked proud of themselves. They said, okay, well, I took all of the leaves out of my eaves. We fire smarted our home. We got some volunteer firefighters trained up. We put a fire break next to the, the village. We lined all of our boats up beside the river in case the highway got blocked. And so from that, what we really took from it was that preparation not only practically does good, but it feels good. So mm -hmm. something that comes up a lot in literature is that action feels better than anxiety. You know, I want to pick up on the, that notion of anxiety um, because, you know, we, we can certainly talk about wildfire smoke. We can talk about higher temperatures and the impact on pollen and therefore allergies. But anxiety is a, a key part of it. And and so I want to bring in a, a caller, um, Brian Scarrett in Eden Mills, Ontario. Hi, Brian. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you, you tell us you, you experience climate change anxiety. Tell me how that um, manifests itself. Well, I guess it's this feeling of uh, helplessness that I see in, not only in myself, but in my, my clients. I'm involved with coaching and helping other people to come to grips with the various uh, cause the things that cause anxiety and depression, and just as the, your previous caller was talking about, it's a similar kind of thing. They feel like there's nothing they can do. Mm -hmm. So uh, the one thing that I wanted to get across was we have to examine the whole notion of degrowth or zero growth. We can't continue to extract materials from the planet and can continue the way we have been in the past. And it's not one that's a, a very welcome idea, but we can't. We have to look at zero growth or negative growth in the future. Yeah. And that does seem to ring bells with some people. Yeah, Brian, uh, thanks very much um, for your call. And I'm, I'm actually going to turn back to um, uh, Dr. Howard about that idea of anxiety. Um, and, and Dr. Howard, you hear Brian talking about how there is that sense of helplessness. You've talked about how you would prescribe in the ER, you would prescribe perhaps um, exercise. What are the other things that we we can do and even just recognizing the anxiety that we might feel? Sure. And that's actually really important. So when I, because I live in the North and have for over a decade, we're changing really quickly up there. So I had some pretty significant climate anxiety when I realized that climate change is the biggest global health threat of the 21st century about 13 years ago, because we really weren't talking about that in the medical community. And so I would come to meetings and people didn't really want to listen to me. And I, I initially thought it was a data problem. And so I brought all sorts of studies. I was the only person who had an appendix to some of my motions at some general counsel uh, meetings at one point. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I realized that actually it was because the information I was presenting was making people feel sad or anxious or guilty. And that's actually why they didn't want to listen to me. And so... I've now realized that when we talk about this, this is climate change as a diagnosis that affects each one of us, 
every one of our family members, for doctors, every one of our patients, everyone we love. And what that means is we're all dealing with some emotions around it, regardless of whether we're we're aware of it. And so when I'm in the emergency department and I give a difficult diagnosis to people, I expect anger, anxiety. Uh, sometimes people laugh. Sometimes people have tons of questions. Sometimes they leave. Those are all normal human reactions to bad news. So the more compassionate we can be with one another in having these conversations, the better. It can really be important to give yourself time to absorb that diagnosis. Uh, when my mom was diagnosed with cancer, I know that I had to spend time walking, uh, time journaling, time dancing. And those are all types of things. Whatever's gotten you through other difficult periods in your life is going to help you process these emotions. And then we move, once we're centered enough to strategize, we can move to action. And so we can do things on adapting to climate change and also on decreasing greenhouse gas emissions. Sometimes I think when people feel helpless, that we it's, it's as though we're picturing an either or, like there's a black and white here. And Really, there's a whole spectrum of success in terms of how we respond to climate change. I sometimes mm -hmm. find it helpful to think about if I do this, could it create a better Tuesday for somebody? You know, in the emergency department, I, I've never saved a single life ever. Uh, we all die at some point, but I sure have prolonged life and I sure have helped people go home happier, less nauseous, in less pain. And so as you're looking at what you can do, adaptation is all about community. Do we have a clean air shelter that people can access? Do we have a cool air shelter that people can access? Are we taking care of our vulnerable patients? Um, is there an elderly person or someone who has trouble accessing services near you? How can you create community to take care of one another during the floods and fires and heat events of the present and future? And in terms of mitigation, we've heard lots and lots of good solutions from callers. I would really stress that when you take an individual action, you send ripples of influence out to everybody that you know. So when I get on my bike and I show up at the emergency department all sweaty with my bike helmet, I'm showing other people that that's what I believe is possible. And mm -hmm. if I do it in the winter on my you know fat tire bike, I get all sorts of questions like, is it cold? What kind of gloves do you wear? And so there's an information provision element to it. There's evidence that solar panels go viral. They they If there's one solar panel in a neighborhood, statistically, you start to get more. You get to see and more. So yeah. Yeah, so those ripples move from the micro or individual level to the macro level. And I'm gonna, when it I, comes to I, politicians, um, it's great to form relationships with them. If they know who you are, it'll be much easier to influence them. Dr. Howard, I'm going to pick up on your notion of, of viral, but not talk about solar panels. Uh, put out a question from Dennis Baomi, who's posted on Facebook. What do we know about the changes in the rates of insect-borne disease uh, specifically diseases that weren't common in North America, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And I'll add on to to Dennis's question in the context of climate change and rising temperatures. Sure. So we can think about this in terms of changes in habitat. So most um, vector-borne diseases depend on a bug of some sort, a host of some sort, some other animal that isn't a, a human, and, and humans. And we're more likely to get them when we come into closer proximity. So a couple of years ago, we had um, elders from all over the Northwest, ter Northwest Territories come down, and we put a map of the territory on a table mm -hmm. and asked people to draw where things were and how things had changed since they were little. And so by the end of it, we had arrows all over the place. Well, the beavers used to be here, and now they're here, and the caribou used to be here, and now they're here. And when you think about 
what that means in terms of the, the animals, the ticks that they might be carrying, where the people are. It just creates all sorts of new opportunities for mm. new viruses um, that have maybe been here before, but weren't uh, lately or or just entirely new viruses to, to transfer into humans. And so that's Could one of the reasons why Could this include West Nile, so- for instance? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, pretty much. I mean, these are all just little living beings who are trying to find a good place to live, right? And mm. so as precipitation patterns change, as um, as heat patterns change, it provides new opportunities. And so we need to make sure we're investing really well in public health. As doctors, we need to be thinking, okay, well, there isn't usually Lyme disease where I work, but now someone's come in with a tick and I'm not entirely sure that there isn't any here now. So I'm going to send that off for testing. And so just broadening our differential diagnosis, broadening our, our list of possibilities in our head um, that we consider when a patient comes in with a fever or if we get a fever um, is a way that we can help to make sure that we're catching those new diseases when they arise. I'm here with Dr. Courtney Howard, and we are taking your calls. It's our Ask Me Anything About Climate Change and Your Health. You can give us a call, 1-888-416-8333, or leave a comment, um, cbc.ca slash aircheck is where you can do that, also where you can get on the program um, from that profile as well. Uh, Dr. Howard, I am going to bring in another caller, Kevin Proshik, uh, who's in uh, Verdun, Manitoba. Hi, Kevin. Hi. Thanks for... uh taking my call. Not at all. I know uh, you, you're going to have wildfire smoke there blowing in um, uh, from the west. Uh, what's um, your question? Okay. Uh, uh, we've all had the N9 access to N95 masks for COVID, but I'm just wondering how good they are for uh, uh, smoke to prevent smoke inhalation, smoke particle and and and. and, and inhalation. It's a very good question, Kevin, and I'll put that to Dr. Howard. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. That's a great question. Uh, They do work well. So what you want to do is find an N95 mask that has a good seal. So when you sort of press it into your face and then breathe in, you feel like the air is coming through the mask as opposed to through gaps in the side. If you feel like it's coming in through the mask and you can sort of feel the mask sucking onto your face a little bit, then that's how you know you've got a good seal. And certainly the majority of uh, fine particulate matter gets filtered out by that. So for people with little kids, uh, you can order N95 masks online. Uh, We got some, uh, sometimes it takes a couple tries to find the ones that fit your kids right, but it's certainly worth doing. Uh, We know when the smoke is really bad. Uh, the public health advice is to stay inside with the windows closed, but sometimes there's unavoidable errands that need to be to be run. And so putting a mask on during those times is a really great option. Hey, my name is Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I ask you as well, you know, we talk about uh, wildfire smoke, we talk about anxiety, um, you know, around helplessness with climate change. Let me ask you about allergies, Seems an awful lot of people I know who have allergies this year have blown up like balloons and are thinking pollen is really, really bad. Why is that? 
Yeah. So in this case, it's the trees reacting and and the other plants reacting to the change in heat and precipitation. And so just depending on what kind of conditions they've 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 been experiencing, they may sometimes produce more pollen. There's quite good evidence. There was a study in the Lancet Planetary Health a couple of years ago that had over 10 years worth of data from Saskatoon and Winnipeg, and it showed a steady increase in yearly pollen counts. So it certainly is uh, worthwhile to stock up on non-drowsy allergy medications if that works for you to try to, you know, sometimes take the the drowsy ones at night if that's what you need to do. And uh, yes, you're, you're not imagining it. That is real. And as the temperature sort of varies, we're, we're likely to see more inconsistencies in pollen seasons and overall probably a gradual increase in uh, some of our seasonal allergy symptoms. But what What is the, and maybe I missed the, it, but what, what is the trigger? What is causing those higher pollen counts? Is it we're, that we're seeing higher temperatures? Why is it like that? Is it that we go from cold to suddenly really blast hot and that uh, everything lights up? You know, I'm not a horticulturalist, okay. so I can't answer that in detail, but it def- it just has to do with the individual plant and how it reacts to those new temperatures. So I suspect that it's uh, probably quite different from tree to tree or plant to plant. And uh, I bet there's a Canadian out there who's got their finger up like, I know, I know. Yeah, there, there <laughs> but, almost uh, certainly is. If yeah, you know the yeah. answer, cbc.ca slash air check. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, as we continue along the idea of this, do you see um, a connection between the spread of infectious diseases and climate change? Is there one of the, is there a connection like that globally? It's certainly something that we are concerned about. And this has to do too with the increasing amount of the Earth's surface that humans are occupying. So Again, if we are crowding in on the places where uh, other living beings have been living, and putting ourselves right next to them, it's a lot more likely that they're going to bite us um, and we're going to be exposed to a new virus. And so about 75% of emerging infectious diseases in humans, so new infectious diseases, are, are agreed to have been caused by what's called a viral spillover or the spillover of a d- disease from animals into humans. And so it's one of the really good reasons uh, to follow some of these su- suggestions that came out of the biodiversity meeting in Montreal we need to make sure we protect at least 30% of the world's surface. We need to make sure that forests uh, have the ability to grow, that we replant some of the forests that have been degraded, and that we make sure that we protect those areas. And there's so many benefits to that because not only do we end up having less potential for uh, infectious diseases, but of course the trees themselves uh, suck carbon out of the atmosphere and help to solve some of our climate change problems as well as giving us an opportunity to have uh, a place if we want to go for a walk sometimes in some of the peripheral uh, areas and parks where we can enjoy the health benefits of nature as well. Catherine Wood has reached out to us on AirCheck, and she has asthma, and she's asking what can she do um, about you know wildfire smoke reaching Vancouver? Yeah, so my, my daughter has asthma, and uh, certainly when we were uh, driving through the Rockies about two summers ago, we were hoping to go for a hike and open the door, and she just started coughing. Um, asthma exacerbations are one of the most clear signals that we see when smoke goes up. So it's a good idea to have a conversation with your doctor to see if you're on the optimal, optimal medications. Um, what we're starting to recommend sometimes is that 
people refill their puffers or their asthma medications before wildfire season, similar to the way some people do before cold and flu season. There's some people who know they always, you know, when they get a cold, their asthma always gets worse. So instead of getting the cold, feeling horrible for four days, and then going to see the doctor, they'll just stock up before cold and flu season. I think it's a good idea for us to start doing that before wildfire season. So making sure your medications are optimized, making sure you're keeping an eye on the air quality health index. Um, Health Canada has a great website, so you can go and see what it is for your part of Canada at any given time. You can also see the directions that are given for a given um, person at a given level of air quality health index. What uh, people with asthma and other pre-existing uh, respiratory conditions, um, they are considered vulnerable populations. So at a given level of air pollution, it's recommended that they do less. So that's more making sure that your windows are closed. Um, it's worth it to buy an indoor air filtration device that can help bring down the particulate matter in your home so that you're optimized if you end up having to go outside. Mm-hmm. And then to just maintain your mental health exercising in clean air environments is can really help get people through these difficult times. So whether that's a recreation center, that's a good clean air shelter where you are, or doing that at home with a podcast or what have you, making sure you get up, get that exercise, it will make it easier uh, to have those days where maybe you're staying inside. And as we were talking about with the other caller, having an N95 mask on, if you do have to go outside in the smoke will make a big difference. Bill Eckstein has reached out to us on AirCheck and he's asking, is anyone tracking the toxins from all the houses that have burned and the effects that they may have on our air system? Uh, and Bill, I'll be frank with you, I, I don't know if anyone is tracking um, the houses because there have been some houses in this latest round of wildfires in Western Canada um, that have been lost. Um, but I will turn to uh, Dr. Howard and you know ask about what we know about some of the health effects of air pollution, whether it's from wildfires, and you talk about the particulate that's in the air, that wood particulate, what are are some of the other health impacts? It's an interesting question because Mm -hmm. this is sort of one of the reasons why we can't directly apply all of the other air pollution literature to wildfire-related smoke. It's because it's composed of different things. So, Wildfire-related smoke is just as you would sort of appreciate. It is a toxic jumble of the combustion products of everything that just went up in smoke. And so when we say particulate matter 2.5, we're talking about anything that will fit through a really, really small grid. It doesn't discriminate based on what it is. It's just that it's very, very small. And so that is is sort of why um, some of the results from the wildfire-related air pollution studies are a little different than the traffic-related air pollution studies, the bottom line is that the composition um, of the smoke will be a little bit different depending on what exactly is burning. We don't have studies to the level of detail for health looking at that uh, closely. Um, and so really the, uh, the, the major recommendation is just make sure that you're uh, decreasing your exposure as much as possible because we know that those super fine particles can go all the way into your lungs, into your bloodstream and cause levels of inflammation that enhance the possibility of heart disease, et cetera. So it's not worth the exposure. Uh, make sure you protect yourself. 
That question uh, coming in to us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. If you have a question or a comment in our final minutes here for Dr. Courtney Howard, um, that's the best way to get it to us, cbc.ca slash aircheck. Um, very interesting, Dr. Howard, to hear you talk about that very fine particulate um, in air pollution, that it goes from the lungs and potentially into the bloodstream, can get into your heart. How does it get out? Well, in fact, it's like so many things. It, it sets our it sets our immune system off into huge cascades of this molecule activates, this molecule activates, this molecule. We do have great detoxification um, organs in our body, our kidneys, our liver, etc. So, thank goodness that we have these uh, sort of homeostatic devices that help us help keep us on an even keel, but. You know, we don't have long-term studies into the health impacts of uh, an acute, severe exposure to wildfire smoke. One of the reasons that I did this study was uh, in Yellowknife was that I wondered what impact it had on my kids. And I was really surprised when I got to the end of the literature-based reading and realized that nobody really knows. And so, you know, it's best at this point, uh, the only uh, work that we have on the long-term impacts of air pollution is from children exposed to sort of purposeful wood burning in Indonesia, uh, mm. a cohort over years actually showed that the children were slightly shorter than they would have expected to have been. It's the only study that's been done to my knowledge. So, you know, we'll wait and see what other studies happen. There's one done in a type of uh, primate that was exposed in a zoo in California as juveniles, and they actually had reduced lung function for their entire life so far. And so, Based on what we know, it's not good, um, and we'll be looking for other studies to come out on that topic. I am impressed by your encyclopedic knowledge of these uh, the, these various studies. Um, I, I uh, do want to throw a question uh, at you from Dennis Sayak in Fredericton, New Brunswick. And Dennis, I know you're on the line, but I'm just going to ask your question because we don't have a lot of time left here. Uh, the product Navage, which flushes out the nasal passages with a saline solution, would it be of help to dealing with the ill effects of forest fire smoke. Dr. Howard. I haven't seen a study on that, but I think it's worth trying, certainly. Um, a lot of the sort of more irritating um, outcomes are not necessarily studied really carefully in the literature because, you know, people will deal with that at home and they won't present to the emergency department with it, so we don't gather numbers. But certainly, um, I did a course in Delhi, India, when I was a medical student, and one of the first things they did was take us up on the on the roof and make us do basically that. We felt way better afterwards. Yeah, well. And so I, I would say, you know, try it. If it works, keep doing it. Um, our, our nasal passages don't like being filled with smoke particles either. There you have it. Well, Dr. Howard, um, certainly appreciate uh, your your time and your expertise, um, particularly since we're getting you uh, over in the UK and the time is quite a bit later. Thanks so much for sharing some of your time and your thoughts and uh, your experience with us. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been it's been really wonderful. And with regards to the degrowth question, I think we're going to hear more and more uh, input around a gradual move to a well-being oriented economy because that's what we need. Yeah, that is an interesting one. That could well be the subject of a future program here on Cross Country <laughs> Checkup. Dr. Courtney Howard, emergency physician and vice chair of the Global Climate and Health Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Howard, of course, um, based in Yellowknife for the past decade, but we have reached her in Oxford in the UK for uh, some work that she is doing, some studies that she's completing there. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.